you hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop, how about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking Queer Money on the road this summer and fall. Visit QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. Welcome back to Queer Money. Sometimes straight people do the gayest things. As we learned from Melissa Thomas, the money coach today, Melissa is a mom and a wife. She's financially independent and is helping others become financially independent as well. Much like us, though, she didn't start out that way. In fact, she was buried in $30,000 worth of student loan debt before she took a teaching position earning $19,000 a year. And that's just the start. Today, Melissa shares her story of becoming and staying debt-free, and her motivation, which many of you will resonate with, is a key component for her success. Here we go. There's personal finance for the masses. This is not personal finance for the masses. This is Queer Money. Well, welcome back to another episode of Queer Money. We don't always have only LGBT people on our show. <laughs> We've had straight people before. But when we find out they've done something as gay as this, <laughs> we have to have more queer money. <laughs> so, And by gay, we mean fun. <laughs> <laughs> so this is an interesting, fun show. Uh, and of course, it, it'll segue into money and finance. So welcome, Melissa Thomas, to the show. Thank you guys so much for having me. I'm excited. You just made me laugh right out loud with that. <laughs> Good. <laughs> yeah, that's, Good. That's I'm, what this I'm is really all. looking forward to the rest of the interview now. <laughs> <laughs> well, we try to keep it fun so people stay engaged. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. So would you mind giving our listeners a little bit of your background and, and who you are, please? Sure. So my name is Melissa. I am the founder and owner of Melissa the Coach, where I am a personal finance coach, speaker, and author. My husband, Jack, and I live in southeastern North Carolina. We've been married for 16 years. We have two boys who are 12 and 11 and four rescue dogs who you (laughs) may or may not hear chiming in the background at any given time. So, yeah, and my husband works for a major corporation here in town, and I've had my own company. We're just ending year five, rolling right into year six now. Wow, that's awesome. We'll have to make sure we touch on that a little bit, too, because that's exciting. But I want to take a step back uh, several years ago. At some point, you realized that your financial life, anyway, wasn't going the direction you had hoped. Yeah, it was actually this time of year, December of 2009, when we, and I, I say we because I always include my husband in everything, even though he's not necessarily you know, it's, it's always just a we. <laughs> so, um, when we, meaning I, hit financial rock bottom in that I was sitting at my computer. Our boys were five and four at the time. And I was more concerned about making sure that we had the Norman Rockwell Christmas morning where there were, you know, a hundred gifts under the tree and they were more concerned about Santa coming than they were about the real meaning of the holiday. And as a Christian, that really, really bothered me. And it bothered me to the point where I knew that I had to do something different in order to not be in that same situation the following Christmas. Because we were really at that point financially where we were living paycheck to paycheck and we had no money in savings. But in retrospect, I realized that we made too much money to be living that way, but we just weren't managing our money well. And just years and years of doing that just finally came crashing down that Christmas because I was definitely one of those people that flipped open the calendar to December and went, oh, I have 25 days till Christmas. <laughs> you know, because there was, there was no pre-planning involved at any point. And so through a series of events, I was introduced to Dave Ramsey and his Financial Peace University program. And we started that on January 1st of 2010. Do you mind me asking how much debt did you acquire? We had uh, $43,544 of debt. (laughs) Very specific. That's a lot. I will never forget that number for as long as I Right. (laughs) Life-changing number, right? That's right. That's right. But of course, it's important for her to have known the specific of that number because you can't pay that off unless you know exactly what you have right. to pay off. Right. Like that's part of that's part of dealing with any problem, right? Is acknowledging that you have a problem before, you know, before you can deal with it. But interestingly enough, I did not know what that number was until we started FPU, which is the Financial Peace University course. I knew we had debt, but I had no idea it was that high. And I think that had I been paying better attention, keeping track of things, you know, maybe when we hit 20 or 30,000, I would have been like, hey, something's going on here. Do we need to fix it? But, you know, but we didn't. I mean, we just kept, you know, living like keeping up with the Joneses and doing what we thought we were supposed to be doing rather than taking a look at our situation and being like, you know what? 
maybe we should do things differently because it just didn't occur to us to do anything different than anybody else that we knew were doing. Mm -hmm. Right. I think a lot of Americans, a lot of families can relate to your story. How having acquired debt and not paying attention to it, even though you knew pragmatically you were doing well income wise. You know, it's just the we can afford a payment mentality, you know, and if the bank told us we are, we're eligible for the loan. In that time, we were very much in the mindset of, well, the bank approved us for the loan. So obviously we can afford the payments. It wasn't the, <laughs> it wasn't <laughs> the, you know, we can live a life with no payments, that sort of thing. And so, you know, one of the things that I really had to sit down and a part of Financial Peace University is really going through and seeing what did you do to get to this point. And The first thing that happened was when I graduated from college in 1995, I graduated with over $30,000 of student loan debt. And I was a high school teacher. My very first job, I made $19,500. So right off the bat, I was in a hole. And, Mm -hmm. And I was determined to live on my own and be my own person. And so I had an apartment and then bought my first car because, again, it was five months, 0% interest. I was like, okay, yeah, I'll do that. You know, and then I have this car payment and I was living in a townhouse at a townhouse payment and all that kind of stuff. And it just never occurred to me to be like, Hey, you know what, maybe I should move back in with my parents and work for two years, pay off my loans and then go live by myself. That just didn't occur to me to do that because I was like, no, I'm not living, I'm not moving back home. I'm going to be an independent person to live by myself, you know? (laughs) And so that was kind of the first problem. But you know, I had my friends Visa, MasterCard and Discover there to help me out when things got tight. And so, you know, and then just only making the minimum payments back and then interest, you just get caught in this vicious cycle. And then when I met my husband, he was active duty in the Marine Corps and we got married in 2001. So we have this joke that neither one of us married for the money because at, at one point in time in my teaching career, I was actually making more money than he was making active duty Marine Corps. And that's probably a different discussion for a different podcast because I just, <laughs> right. that, that didn't sit well with me at all, but that was just the way things were at the time. So we were married in 2001. We lived in an apartment. And again, it didn't occur to us to save one income, live off one income, you know, that sort of thing. We were just like, hey, now we have two incomes. We have so much more money. And the more money we made, the more money we spent, the more we went into debt. I mean, it was just this constant cycle. Like we could just never get ahead. And in 2003, we bought a brand new car for myself. I think it had, you know, maybe 20 something miles on it or whatever. And then in 2004, we bought a house. In June of 2004, we bought a house, which we had to go through a mortgage broker in order to get a mortgage because we were denied by the bank. But again, it was that mentality of, oh, that bank doesn't know what they're doing. We can afford a house payment. <laughs> you know, so we. <laughs> went through a mortgage broker and the mortgage broker found us a mortgage and we were all excited that we got the mortgage that it didn't occur to us that six point something percent for a mortgage was kind of high. You know, we were just excited we got a mortgage. So we bought the house in June and then in January, we bought my husband a brand new truck. So we went brand new house, our brand new car, brand new house, brand new truck. Our first son was born in 2005 and our second son was born in 2006. So we went, you know, boom, 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 like all these big major lifestyle changes. I became a stay-at-home mom by default because by the time we bought the house, I had left my teaching career and I was working retail and we figured out that my retail job would basically just pay daycare. And I loved my retail job, but not enough to just sign my paycheck over to daycare. So I became a stay-at-home mom. We had no financial planning at all for me to become a stay-at-home mom. And the number one mistake we made was that when I became a stay-at-home mom, we went from two incomes to one income, but we never changed our lifestyle. And that was really a huge mistake on our part because, again, we had the credit card. We had good credit and we were making payments on time and all these things. So we kept getting credit card offers in the mail And every time a credit, you know, a new offer would come in saying, you're pre-approved. We filled out the application, you know, and we did the work for you. (laughs) Yeah. Like, okay, that's great. You're going to give us more money. That's fantastic. Because at the time we thought it was just great that we could just make minimum payments. That was just like, you know, the best thing ever invented sort of thing. And again, in retrospect, had we stopped and really did an analysis of where we were and did what we do now called financial projections, you know, we would have seen that we were headed down a deep, dark hole at a very rapid pace. But 
we didn't see that. And then it all finally just caught up to us um, that December of 2009. There's a couple of things that really stand out to me. In your story, what you're describing is something that I think the way that most Americans, most people in the world probably live, especially where they have access to credit. Now we're starting to hear stories about Asian and Eastern European countries where individuals are getting massive amounts of debt as well. So it's clear, John and I are from the same generation of where we came from, a generation where there wasn't financial education offered at all in the school systems. And not even in in higher education was there ever an opportunity to learn about how to manage your money as an individual. I took plenty of finance classes that taught me about international finance and about uh, finance in general, but they never, never once talked about a budget. Couldn't balance a checkbook. Right. Right. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) exactly. And then I think the other interesting thing is you made the comment about how you were making your payments on time, you were making your minimum payments, and you just kept on getting those offers for more credit. And it totally speaks to this, the number that shocked me one time, John and I uh, saw this, I think this was a couple of years ago. In one year, credit card companies in the US send out 4 billion applications to people who are pre-approved. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me at that, all. That's more yeah. than 10 times the number of people living in the United States, including right. <laughs> babies and people who are 90 years old who can't afford to have a credit card because they can't make mm-hmm. the payments on them. Mm-hmm. So clearly there's that's exactly right. There's a financial systemic problem with lack of education and for them just continuing to flood us with these offers telling us we can do it when we don't know we can. That's exactly right. And, you know, when you say that, I would say at least two or three times a week, even now in the mail, I get credit card applications and every single one of them says you're pre-approved. Some of them say you're pre-selected. So there's Mm -hmm. a difference between pre-selected and pre-approved. But I just, you know, just as we're talking here, I just made a note here that I think for 2018, I'm going to keep all the offers I get in the mail and just to count (laughs) to see how many I get. Because now when I get them, it's interesting about, you know, how the mindset shift really works. And that's really the premise of going through Financial Peace University, because when those offers came in the mail years ago, I would be so excited and couldn't wait to sit down and fill out the application and mail it right back in so I could get my credit. And now they come in the mail and I take them out of the mailbox and on my way down my driveway back into my house, I'm tearing them up. And, put, and then when I get and then when I get in the house, I put them through the shredder after I tear them up, you know. And so I can just look at things now. And the problem is that every once in a while, I'll get something in the mail that I think is junk mail. And then somebody will send a and I'll be like, I'm so sorry. I thought that was like junk mail. And I threw it, away. <laughs> you know, it, was, it wasn't really. But it was actually important. That, it was actually important. Yeah. But because I'm just in that habit now of looking at something and going, oh, that's junk mail and tearing it up and throwing it away because because I don't need their money anymore. Right. You know, before I needed the money and now I don't need the money anymore. So that's a that's a huge shift in how we manage our personal finances, just knowing that I don't care if I'm qualified for the such and such platinum card where I can get all these points and rewards and stuff like that. I don't need it. Mm-hmm. And so it, it just goes right in the shredder. So about five years ago, this time of year, you were having a conflict between the season of giving and consumerism. Yes. Yeah. So our, our financial rock bottom was in December of 2009. Eight. Okay. Yeah. Eight years ago. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. And what, what sort of led to that? You mentioned earlier your, your Christianity, but was it solely focused on that or were you starting to sense a, an imbalance in your finances? Well, no, oddly enough, it was not the imbalance in my finances because I had credit cards to pay for Christmas. Yeah, <laughs> so that, right. wasn't, that wasn't the problem. The problem really was that I was sitting at my computer and I was searching through buying stuff for the boys and making sure that Christmas was going to be memorable for them. And I very clearly heard a voice in my head say, you are doing this wrong. And my hmm. instinct was... No, I'm not. I've shopped online hundreds of times. I'm not doing this wrong. And right after I had that response, I went, oh, that <laughs> right. That's not what they were talking about. <laughs> you know, like, where did that thought come from? You know? 
And so, um, you know, I don't claim to hear the voice of God very often, but that was clearly <laughs> a time in my life where I was like, oh, I got you. And then again, in retrospect, I saw where God had been trying to show me in different ways. You know, that was really the the proverbial two by four over the back of my head, you know, that that sort mm-hmm. of thing. And it really was because at that point, the boys knew very little about the real meaning of the Christmas, but a whole lot about Santa, you yeah, know, and it right. was like, that's not right. That's not how I had envisioned that I wanted to raise the boys. That's not how, that's not how this works. You know, it's not about Santa and presents and the Christmas tree. Like let's shift our focus a little bit. And so the bargain, because at that point in my faith walk, I was still very much like, okay, God, like, I know you want me to do this, but I want to do it this way. And then I'll do it your way. And that, you know, and, Mm. you know, we know that that doesn't really work that way. But Mm -hmm. that's how I was at the time. And so I was just like, you know, come January, I'm going to find something so that we're not in the same situation. So I follow through on my end of the bargain. So we still had we still had Christmas. And it's funny because the boys, again, being five and four, half the stuff we bought them at Christmas ended up in the next summer's yard sale. That's the lesson here is that what are we doing? Like we're buying, spending all this money to buy them stuff that six months after Christmas is either going to end up in the yard sale or it's going to end up at Goodwill or it's going to end up wherever because it's just the consumerism. We're just teaching them that the stuff is more important than the experiences. And so our mindset has shifted a lot from that too, and that we very much are more into trying to embrace minimalism. We're working on it. It's a step. I think it's, I think it needs to be a 12 step plan or something like that. <laughs> but really focusing on having more experiences and less stuff. And those are the things that as our boys have gotten older, they'll say, Oh, do you remember when we did this? I'm like, that's exactly why yeah, we right. pay for the experiences instead of having the stuff. So, right. That's a great segue into why we brought you on the show today. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I I just have a a comment about what you were just saying there, because I think that a lot of us feel at certain points in our life compelled to buy things for people to replace the fact that we're not spending the time with them. Oh, yes. Right? I'm I'm not spending the time with my family, with my children. I'm not spending the time with my loved one my spouse. So I'm going to get them a really nice gift to tell them that I love them. Right. But then we spend all of this money on these gifts, which then in turn forces us to have to work even more because now we're in debt. So we just get stuck, like you mentioned, get stuck in this cycle of I'll buy you something to replace the time but I'm taking the time away from you so I can buy you stuff. That's correct. And That's exactly right. If you don't stop and observe that happening in your life, whether it's buying stuff for other people or buying stuff for yourself to make yourself feel good, to tell yourself that you love yourself, you're never going to get off that hamster wheel. And you're going to keep going through this debt cycle and. Over and over. That's exactly right. Yeah. And that's why it all comes down to a mindset shift. It's not just about the numbers. It's about how you think and act and feel about money that really drives every decision you make about where your money goes. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great analogy. All right. So let's get to the gay part. (laughs) (laughs) So obviously you you had this inspiration and motivation to become debt free. You wanted to teach your kids about experiences over consumerism. You one, obviously, financial independence, but there is a much more grand goal that you had in life. Would you mind, <laughs> right. would you mind so, sharing uh, with our listeners what one of your biggest inspirations was to get out of debt? Yeah. So, and I'll preface it by this story. So when uh, my husband and I had our first budget meeting and we were going over everything and I said to him, so, well, you know, Dave Ramsey says that we need a reason to get out of debt because it's going to be a lot of hard work. We have to do the budget. We have to really pay attention to our money and blah, blah, blah. And I said to him, so what would be your reason for getting out of debt? And he said, well, I don't know. I'd have to think about that. And then he turns around to me and he goes, and what's your reason? Like, I already knew the reason. Like, I was just letting him go first to be nice. You know? and I, was like, well, I said, so my reason for getting out of debt was so that I could have money to go see Elton John. And my husband looked at me and he goes, of course, of course, that is your reason. Like, of all the reasons in the world. Because I have been a huge fan 
of Elton John for going on 30 years, I guess. Now, I was about 12 or 13 when I listened to my dad's cassette tape of Goodbye Yellow Brick Road and just <laughs> fell in love with the music. And then as I got to know more about Elton and who he was and just falling in love with really how passionate he is about music. But the icing on the cake for me was going to my first Elton John concert when I was 19 years old and making a decision then that I wanted to meet him in person, knowing that the only way I could do that was to go to concerts. And so I have spent <laughs> my entire adult life going to as many Elton John concerts as I possibly can. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and a little gay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's part of the story, right? <laughs> yeah. So have you met Elton John? Have you fulfilled that dream? Well, there, there seems to be some debate about that. So in my <laughs> eye, I have not met Elton John because to me, meeting Elton John is standing in front of him saying, Hi, I'm Melissa. Shake his hand, maybe get a selfie, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. However, in October, what month is this? December, October, <laughs> um, like, whew, time is flying by. I fulfilled a bucket list item by going to Las Vegas to see his million dollar piano show. I went to the Friday night show and the Saturday night show. And the Saturday night show, I got close enough to Elton that I shook his hand on the stage. And that to me was a moment that is still even still now when I talk about it I'm like did that really happen like did that, you know because it's still um you know because you just think about something for so long and think mm -hmm. about and Vegas is the only venue where you can go and stand on stage around Elton John's piano so it's just oh, a matter wow. of getting up there on time getting in that spot I was only two or three feet away from him to the side of his piano stool and he plays Saturday night while everybody's standing up there and during the middle part of the song, he turns around and kind of high fives everybody who's standing right there. And it was just in that split second, I stuck my hand out for a handshake instead of doing a high five and he shook my hand. And <laughs> nice. you know, it was just kind of like, that's just awesome. You know, and totally. there were, I was very fortunate that because, you, you know, you have a, there's a problem with living in the moment, but wanting to document everything that's happening in that moment at the same time. Mm -hmm. And because I was holding up a sign, because that was my 38th Elton John concert, <laughs> I was holding up a sign. So I had the sign in one hand and my phone in the other hand. And I was like, one of these has got to go because <laughs> I need a free hand, you know? <laughs> so I just made the decision to stick my phone in my back pocket and hold the sign up. And that's how I had that opportunity. And after the show, I was walking out with my friends and somebody tapped me on the shoulder and I thought it was one of my friends. And I turned around and this lady goes, oh, I'm so glad I found you. I have a picture that you have got to see. And it was the picture that I had posted on <laughs> oh, social nice. media of me shaking Elton John's hand. And I was like, you know what? You are like the best person ever. You're my <laughs> because, that's just, because it's just she didn't number one she didn't have to do that like she didn't sure. have to track me down you know after the fact and she said that she was standing at the other side of the piano like at the front of the piano and she said she was just taking pictures and taking pictures and taking pictures and she said that while she was taking pictures you guys know this because i'm sure you've seen the pictures but for your audience i was wearing this silver <laughs> sequin blouse so like you kind of <laughs> couldn't miss me you know and so um she said that she happened to look over and she said I saw your blouse and she said, but then I just saw you and you were jumping up and down and screaming and just having such a great time. And she said, I just knew I was just going to take your picture so I could remember what a fun time you were having and stuff. And it just so happened that as she was taking the pictures was that the same moment that I had reached out to shake Elton's hand. So that, oh, cool. that was just, that was just a really, really cool moment. So there's a lot of people that will argue with me that I have met Elton because I <laughs> shook his hand on the stage. But in my mind, it was just one of several other hands that happened to be standing there so that that's the closest I have gotten. But in my mind, it's, I really just want that moment where I can formally introduce myself and be like, can I have a selfie? And then I'll be, <laughs> and I'll be, and I'll, then I'll be good to go. So yeah. That's awesome. I love it. Yes. That's a great story. <laughs> it's everyone has those moments in life where you get so excited or so motivated by something and you really feel life at that moment. Oh, yeah, that's when definitely. you're really in the moment and you totally love it. You know, I will say John and I have mentioned this to 
all of you before, that we encourage you to go on our site and find and fill out the hopes and dreams worksheet that we have. Because this is exactly what Melissa has done. She said, I have a hope and a dream, and I'm going to make it happen. And I know that there's going to be some trade-offs to making that happen. But were they worth it? (laughs) Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, just because, as you might imagine, a trip to Vegas isn't cheap, you know? And especially in that particular venue, you have to sit in the first five rows in order to go up on the stage. And those tickets are $540 a piece. And so when I made the decision that, you know, that was going to be on my bucket list and you go into Vegas, I'm like, you know what? If I'm going to go to Vegas, I'm going for two nights in a row. Like I'm just going to make a whole weekend out of it. So I flew in Friday morning and I went Friday night, Saturday night, and then I flew straight to Dallas and had what a day and a half to sleep and then, <laughs> and, then, and then went right into FinCon. You know? so, oh, wow. Um, yeah. So that, that all happened right before the FinCon conference, but everything worked out. I tried to go to Vegas a year and a half ago and I bought my ticket and then there were just so many things that kept popping up that were like, you can't go, you can't go, you can't go. And I ultimately made the decision not to go. And then Elton ended up canceling that concert because he was sick. And so in retrospect, like I was really mad at the time Mm -hmm. because nothing was working out for me to be able to go. But in retrospect, I was like, oh, that's why, because, you know, the universe knew that the cancer was going to be canceled. (laughs) And and then when it came up again, that it was the weekend before FinCon, I was like, you know what, this is perfect because I'm already going out to Texas. So I might as well just go to Vegas the weekend before, go to FinCon and just all worked out. You know, a lot of people ask me, oh, don't you love being an entrepreneur because you make all this money and blah, blah, blah. And making the money is awesome and helping people is awesome. But the number one thing that owning my own company assures me of is the time freedom because (laughs) I can't imagine any other job where I go to my boss and say, so I'm going to need nine days off of work because I'm going to go see Elton John and then I'm going to a conference. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And so... Yes. Owning my own business, really the number one benefit for me is just having the time freedom to to be able to live my life and do the things that I've wanted to do while also giving me an avenue to pursue my passion of helping other people pursue and realize their own dreams. Awesome. And and, and you're saying everything that David and I continue to say, but just using different words and Having a slightly better story behind it, I think. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you. It reinforces all of our passions and beliefs. So other than being an Elton John groupie, how has has life changed for you and your family, your husband and children since becoming debt-free? Gosh, there's so much less stress. That's really the thing. And we don't have fights about money anymore. We don't say we can't afford that anymore. Like if we have an idea and we want to go do something, it becomes, how can we pay for it instead of, oh, we just can't afford it. And that translates to our kids, you know, that we're able to encourage our boys to pursue their loves and their passions, which, you know, at 12 and 11 kind of change on a monthly basis. But, (laughs) you know, it's just the ability to be able to say to them, yes, you can do that. And mom and dad will pay for it to a certain degree. Like my 12 year old, uh, we have conversations with him because he says, you know, when I'm 16, I get my driver's license and I'm driving and I go in the car you bought and he stopped <laughs> and looks at me and I go, cause mom and dad are not buying you a car. This is why we opened a bank account for you when you were 10 and you have to put 15% of everything you earn into the bank account so that you can have money when you're 16 to go buy a car. And he looks and he goes, Oh yeah, that's right. Okay. So I will got, you know, and, and that, so there are certain things that we draw the line at. No, you're going to earn the money to do those things. But my youngest son is in band and he plays the tuba and his dream is to be in marching band. And I have friends of mine whose kids are in marching band. And what they tell me is that's a money and time commitment because that's traveling. That's, you know, cause they go to competitions and stuff like that. I'm like, you know what? We're good. If that's what he wants to pursue, the money part will not be something that stands in the way. And then um, our oldest son has just taken an interest in joining the Civil Air Patrol, which is, I'm just kind of learning about it, but it's basically airplanes. And I think Civil Air Patrol is somehow associated with the Air Force, but there's some military aspect in there, but they learn how to fly planes. And, you know, last time I checked, uh, flying planes isn't cheap. (laughs) (laughs) So it's just that, 
it costs money to be in civil air patrol and we have to buy him a uniform. And, you know, so it's just that thing where if he says, if they say, hey, mom, you know, this is something that we'd like to pursue, we can say to them, okay, you know, like, let's figure out where it fits in the budget because we're fortunate in that we have some leeway in the budget. We mm-hmm. do, we do the budget every month and we say, okay, this is where all the money's going to go every month. But because of my business and because of my husband's work and because the only debt we have is our mortgage payment, we have the extra money, so to speak, to be able to say, okay, well, instead of it going into savings, we can siphon off a little bit to pay for your civil air patrol dues or for if he wants to go to a band competition or whatever the case may be. And then with my husband and I, trying to think, we became debt free in 2000 and it was four years ago. So 2013. And in 2015, we completely gutted and remodeled our kitchen and paid cash for the entire project. So that was the big thing because the remodeling of the kitchen became my husband's reason for getting out of debt. I wanted the kitchen too, but I wanted to go see Elton John more. So, you know, that, I, needed a, I needed a more motivating factor. Um, so it's things like that and that we can sit down and say, okay, five years from now, three years from now or two years from now or in the spring, we want to redo the backyard. Okay, well, what does that look like? How, you know, what are we going to do? How much money is it going to cost? So now we just have all these conversations. Whereas before, when you're drowning in debt, it's really hard to dream when you're drowning in debt and to right. say, how are we going to afford this and how are we going to pay for it? And now we have the ability to do that. But most importantly, we have the opportunity to give more we tithe, but to, to be overly generous, um, especially this time of year. And we have to be careful because we do have people that, because I share my story and because people know we're debt free and we, they know that we have money, oh, that they come to us and say, well, we know you have money, so can you pay for this? <laughs> like, right. That's not the point of this. We're not the bank. <laughs> right. So right. It's the opportunity to to be givers for over and above what we tithe every month. And that's the best thing. I mean, Dave Ramsey says in Financial Peace University, the best thing you'll ever do with money is give it away. And when he first said that, I was like, no, I think there's a lot better other things that you can do with money. You know, like John Rowe at Elton John, that's pretty cool. You know? <laughs> but now that I've had the chance to experience that and be a giver to the point where it really impacts other people's lives, I can say that, yes, indeed, you know, giving is definitely the best thing that we can ever do with money. And that's really the number one way that being debt free has changed us because we're able to more live within our purpose instead of letting money define how we live our life. That's so awesome. I just want to ask for you to tell one more story. <laughs> sure. I love telling stories. Yes. <laughs> so when we met you and we were having our conversation, you talked about a day when you and your husband were talking about his job. And yeah. You told him something. And I'd love for everyone out there to hear this because I think that so many people long for something like this. Yes. We were having a conversation. Uh, my husband works in a very high stress job. We were just having a conversation one day and he was just really stressed out and really like, I don't know if I can do this anymore and blah, blah, blah. You know, we all have those days. I mean, even even as an entrepreneur, there are days that I wake up and I'm like, what did I do? Like, why why am I doing, you know? And I just looked at him and because most couples, there's always, even though my husband is very involved in our financial discussions and stuff, but I'm the one that does the budget every month and pays the bills and, and really is on top of how much money we have in the bank and all that kind of stuff. And I just looked at him and I said, well, you know, at any time you could quit your job and get a job making half of what you're making now and we'll still be okay. And he just kind of looked at me and was like, okay, I'm like, well, <laughs> let's process this for a minute. Right. I said, we live off X amount a month. We could cut out X amount of expenses and you could make X amount And, you know, my business is bringing in income and we would still be okay. Mm -hmm. And it was just like this moment. And he had this moment of really letting that sink in. But for me, I knew that intellectually, but saying it out loud is an entirely different thing. (laughs) It's one thing to know something, but it's one thing to say it out loud. And we both kind of looked at each other and went, whoa, (laughs) like, 
that would really be okay. I kind of, I love sarcasm as a teaching tool. You know? <laughs> I always, I looked at them and I said, now we might have to give up Netflix and cable, but we'd be okay. <laughs> that sort of thing. But we really would be, you know, and that's really, again, being debt free. That's the other thing that it presents us with is options. Mm-hmm, right. Like we have options available to us to be able to say, hey, you know what? This isn't what we want to do anymore or whatever. We just have those options available to us. That was a really huge defining moment for not only for us in becoming debt free. And I tell people this all the time. It's harder to stay debt free than it was to get out of debt in the first place. Right. Because in my case, I had 20 years of bad habits that with money that I'm still working on on a daily basis. I mean, I still to this day can't go into Costco and Target without a cash envelope. (laughs) (laughs) My impulse spending is still very strong. So there are still things that are so ingrained. Those habits are so ingrained that it's really easy to fall back into the bad habits. So we have to really, really be careful that we don't become complacent and we don't become like, oh, we're good with money. We can just spend and we don't really have to do the budget every month because it's so much more important now than it was when we were getting out of debt just so that we can stay on the path that that we want to stay on for our financial future. Right. And what I love about that story is that you mentioned earlier, this idea of time freedom, getting that debt completely wiped away, what it provides for you. When you're listening to this, think, do you want to spend more time with your loved ones? Do you want to spend more time with your your spouse? That's the whole reason why John and I have done what we've done is because we want to spend more time together. We hated Mm -hmm. the fact that in the morning at six o'clock, we would head out the door and we wouldn't see each other until six o'clock at night. We would have dinner, maybe watch a little bit of TV, talk with each other a little bit, go to bed. We were not living a life together. Right. That's one of the things that paying your debt off can do is give you that time freedom with your family. Yeah, absolutely. When you were telling us that you proposed to your husband, you might have to give up Netflix and and Hulu. I thought you were going to say that you might have to give up one of the children. (laughs) So which which one's going to go? Give up eating, yeah, you know. But it it really is because when we look at one of the steps in the Dave Ramsey baby steps is having three to six months of income in savings. Yeah. And we had to really go through our budget and decide what does that look like? And the number one thing I said was that it's got to be six months because I feel better, right? Like mm-hmm. that's the only reason I was like, that's the only reason I've got for you is that I just feel better. But what we ultimately decided was that that six months of savings was a stripped down budget. If something happens where I can't work anymore, my husband can't work anymore, that we have six months of income, but it really is just to keep paying the mortgage, to put food on the table, not having Netflix and it's not having unlimited plans on our cell phones and it's Mm -hmm. not having all these extra things that we pay for now because we are debt free. We cut everything out of the budget in order to get out of debt. I mean, we follow the Dave Ramsey plan to a T. We did not eat beans and rice, but we did did cut the grocery budget down a lot. But once we got out of debt, And we kind of had this discussion with, I'm a huge football fanatic, and we got the HD antenna, but where we live in southeastern North Carolina, we're basically surrounded by pine trees. Mm -hmm. So sometimes the antenna would work on the TV, and sometimes it wouldn't. And I would be right in the middle of the football game, and the antenna would not work anymore. And I'd be yelling at my husband, go touch it, go move, stand on one leg, do a yoga pose, something to make it work again. And one day he just looked at me and he said, I know I don't do the budget, but maybe there's a way we could figure out how to pay for cable so we don't have to do this every week. So it was that. But again, that was a shift for us, right, to say, and that's something else that Dave Ramsey talks about, that once you do the work and you get out of debt, you're allowed to have nice things. You just can't go overboard with it, you know. And so it's like, okay, well. Yeah, actually, we could have cable. I could just call the cable company and it's not going to mess up our budget to just go ahead and pay for cable, you know, and then we have Netflix and then, and just all these little extra things that we have. But when we're looking at 
saving six months if something happens where we're not bringing in income anymore and we're not having Netflix and cable anymore, you know, like right. just, because it's not necessary. So we, we really looked at what does a stripped down budget look like? We're not bringing in the income to pay for these unnecessary things, so to speak. And so when you look at having that option to walk away from a job because you don't need the income anymore, that's a very profound thing. And that's not something that a lot of people think about. Uh, you know, I work with a lot of people in my coaching business and I ask them, do you love, like, or hate your job? And they all go, so, you know, not all of them, but some of them go, well, I don't love it. <laughs> but I don't hate it, but I don't really want to say I like it, but I make good money. Mm -hmm. oh, okay. What do you want? And then they're like, well, so, I mean, I really go through a lot of the mindset stuff when we first start working together because it ultimately boils down to if you knew your job was the tool to get you out of debt, would you think differently about going to work every day? And they would go, oh, yeah, that would probably make it a little more enjoyable. Like, I still wouldn't love it. I'm like, I'm not asking you to love it. Mm -hmm. I'm asking you, if, you know, <laughs> if you knew that you had an end date. Like, if you knew that you only had to work at your good paying job that you don't really like for three more years, and then you could go do something you love because the money wouldn't be the problem. Could you do that job for three more years knowing that there's an end date? And they all go, yeah. oh, yeah, I could probably do that. Mm -hmm. But that's the thinking about it differently, right? That's, the, you know, and a lot of people just don't think that way, you know, because unfortunately, we live in a society now where people don't start working for a company at age 18 and stay there until they retire. Does it, it doesn't work like that. And so especially at the age now where people have more of an ability to become an entrepreneur or to just go do something. And I always think about what a better world this would be if everyone was in a job they loved, mm, <laughs> you yep. know, and they, they didn't have to worry about the money. But unfortunately, a lot of people are in a spot financially if they're overwhelmed by debt where they have to get a job to pay the bills. Right. And it's not necessarily a job they love. And if you're going to spend 40 to 60 hours a week someplace, I'm just of the opinion that it better be something that you at least really, really like, <laughs> you yep, know, instead, exactly. of, instead of something you hate. So yeah, for sure. So I think what's great about your story is that now you'd like to give back and, and financially to others and, and help those in need, but you've also used your hard knocks education with money to now help other people become financially independent. Yeah. So I started my coaching business by accident in 2012, but it was January of 2012. And then we became debt free in September of 2013. And it was just one of those things. I was a self-taught couponer and I started teaching coupon workshops. And within that, I would talk about the budgets and basic budgeting and then people would say, I don't know what you mean by a budget. Like, how do I start? And of course, <laughs> at that time, I was like, what do you mean you don't budget? Come over here right now and sit down and we're going to get this budget done. And it was just one thing led to another that I just ended up starting my business. And I didn't know how to run a business because I had no aspirations ever to become an entrepreneur. I just knew I had a passion to help people. And that if I could learn how to manage my money to get out of debt, to have money to do other things rather than just paying off credit cards and car payments and stuff that I could teach other people to do the same thing. And my passion really is in the teaching. I mean, that, you know, that was my career when I got out of college. And so right. I've just put my teaching skills together with this new skill set of getting out of debt. And I do private coaching and workshops and Last year, I started doing speaking and really started doing paid speaking engagements. And I'm, I'm working up towards my goal for 2018 is to be doing keynote speeches at conferences and such because I love that energy. I love the energy of standing in front of a large group of people, a large audience. The largest audience I've spoken to was about a hundred people. And, you know, a lot of people are like, Oh, I can't believe you sat on stage in front of a hundred people. I'm like, I actually love that more than like 10 people. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I'll talk to 10 people, but I love the big, huge crowds of people. You know, I just, there's something about that energy that, that I just really love. And then last year I published my first book. And so when I mentioned before about, I love telling stories, I have a whole book of them, <laughs> you know, that I, that I published in August of this year. So, and it's just looking for how can I help people? Mm -hmm. I can help people by sitting in front of them one-on-one. -on -one. 
I can help people through my speaking and I can help people by writing and publishing a book because some people want to learn that way, right? And anyway, some people want the private coaching. Some people want to attend conferences. Some people just want to buy a book and read a book. And so when I wrote the book, the subtitle is called Life Lessons from Pursuing a Dream. And at the end of each chapter is a life lesson that I learned from a particular experience, whether it be a concert experience or a personal experience. But I've had people tell me that, you know, they've been able to take those life lessons and apply them to their own lives. And it's not always the financial aspect, right? It's like whatever, if they're struggling with relationships or they're struggling with their job or they're struggling with, I had one lady email me and she said, I've really been struggling with my life purpose. And your book really helped me to get on that path of what what do I want to do with my life? Oh, and I was like, whoa, like, that's not why I wrote the book, but that's awesome. Like, <laughs> nice. you know, it's just, I'll take you know, it. It's been, yeah, I'll take it. Right. It's been very interesting to me how all these people that I've heard from and, and people that have reviewed the book, everybody reads the same book, but no two people have the same takeaways. And mm-hmm. that's just been, it's been astounding to me. I mean, very fascinating at the same time, but it's just another tool that I can use to help people to stop letting money be the thing that stands in the way of pursuing their dreams. That's awesome. You obviously have a a passion for it, which is great. And you obviously have a knack for it. So you're providing some great value to people. And so many people are struggling with finance that in any way, shape or form that you can help them and they can get the help. It's, It's wonderful. So where could our listeners learn more about you? Where are you available to them? Uh, so I'm on all social media as Melissa the Coach, I'm mostly on Instagram. And then my Facebook page is also Melissa the Coach. I have a website, melissathecoach.com. And I do write a blog. Um, the blog is on the website that gets published every Friday. And they can either read it on the website or, or uh, there's a place on the website to sign up for my email list. And the blog goes straight to the email list every Friday. And basically just social media or as I'm out and about traveling around, you know, it's been it's been interesting because as I travel to all these places to go see Elton John, sometimes I'll say like, okay, well, I'm going to be in this city and I'm going to be in this city. And every once in a while, I'll meet up with somebody who's friends with me on my Facebook page. They'll be like, oh, I want to meet you. And, mm-hmm, you know, nice. and so the super cool thing is, and I don't, I don't know if I told you guys this story when I saw you at FinCon, but when I went to FinCon in Charlotte, that was my first FinCon. And I has introduced myself as at the time I was only a personal finance coach. I wasn't a speaker and I hadn't written the book yet. And I wish I could remember who stopped me and said, everyone here is a personal finance coach. Tell me something different. (laughs) And I just looked like, I don't like, what am I supposed to say? Like, that was my (laughs) first, that was my first conference within my industry that I had gone to. So I was like, I don't, I don't know what else you guys want me to tell you. And I just looked at her and I went, well, I became debt free so I could pursue my dream of meeting Elton John. And she goes, that, that is what I want to hear. (laughs) And so the very next person that I met was Whitney Hanson. And I said to her, I said, hi, I'm Melissa. I became debt free to pursue my dream of meeting Elton John. And she was like, that's the best introduction (laughs) I've heard. (laughs) And then I ended up, you know, one thing led to another and I ended up being interviewed on her podcast as well. And, and then she introduced me to Amanda and other, other people within FinCon and, Mm -hmm. you know, similar to you guys, they're like, come on and tell your story. Like that's an awesome story. That's much more interesting than I'm just a personal finance coach. (laughs) (laughs) So it's been really funny because then I did not go to the FinCon that was in California because I was going to see, I went to see Elton John instead. <laughs> and I did four concerts in six days. While y'all were at FinCon, I went to, I went to go see Elton John. <laughs> then I went to the one in Dallas. And it was funny because when I would introduce myself to people, I would say, you know, I'm Melissa. I became debt free to see Elton John. And they would go, oh my God, you're the Elton John lady. And I was like, wow, I feel like I've made it, right? Because of all these people, I'm sure you guys know my friend Jessica Garbarino with every single dollar. She said, you're the only person at all of FinCon that became debt free to meet Elton John. I guarantee you there's no one else here, you know? So that's been a little surreal kind of thing for me to get used to that when I do meet people and they make that connection and they go, you're the one who posts and you know, and and that they've been following my journey because every Elton John concert I go to, I always document everything on Instagram. So I always tell people like, if you want to follow me, go over to Instagram because that's where all my stuff is going to be. And that's 
that's been really cool to meet people that were, you know, have been following me on Instagram and following my journey and then to be able to, to meet them in person. And sometimes they go, Oh, I didn't recognize you without your silver shirt. I'm like, well, that's <laughs> just an Elton shirt. Like that's not really an everyday shirt, you know, that, that sort of thing. Like I'm usually just in my polo shirt and my jeans. <laughs> you know, I'm just not. Yeah. So, um, so that's, that's been a very cool thing. And for me, it's just been affirmation that I am doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing, which is inspiring other people to find their Elton John and to find that thing that they love so much that they just want to pursue that and be able to have the money to be able to do what they want to do and pursue their dreams and pursue their passions. Absolutely. Thank you so much for, for coming on our show. I think your story speaks to the power of knowing what your why is. So like David said earlier, go to deadfreeguys.com and download the Hopes and Dreams worksheet and start to figure out what your Elton John is. Thank you so much, Melissa. We appreciate your time today. Yes, thank, thank you. Thank you guys for having me on. It was, it was great fun. I appreciate it so much. Definitely. Thank you, Melissa, for sharing that awesome story. We can definitely relate. With all the good chi that you're putting out into the universe, we have no doubt that you'll meet Sir Elton John someday. To our listeners, your job right now is to go to today's show notes page and download the Debt Free Guys Hopes and Dreams worksheet to find out what your Elton John is. It is so critical to your personal and financial success. Please remember to like, comment, and share this or any other Queer Money episode on iTunes so that we can reach more LGBT people and help them become financially independent. Thank you. Okay. We just serviced you. Now you get to service us by subscribing to this podcast on iTunes and signing up for the Queer Money Lifestyle Newsletter at queer.money. Well, I'm not really gay. (laughs) (laughs) would help me if I had a personal chef made all the all the healthy meals for me. Right. So instead I'll have a Snickers tonight for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> the other end I like the butts, so <laughs> yeah. uh. From Los Angeles, California to Winooski, Vermont, we're taking queer money on the road. Join us as we gamify personal finance with Queer Money Bingo or catch our signature Live Fabulously Not Fabulously Broke Talk and so much more in between. Check out QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player regularly for date and location updates.